Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess purity, political, and pop culture. It has been a couple weeks since I've seen y'all and or talked to y'all. I feel like I see you every week. And it's funny because the last time that I was supposed to see you was on my birthday, which fell on a Friday this year. And since I, since the inception of this podcast, I was so excited that my birthday fell on a Friday because my podcast releases on Fridays. It was going to be like this big birthday tell-all episode, and it was going to be me and my two best friends, Maddie and Megan. And we were so excited. We talked about this episode for months and how good it was going to be and how like... I, I mean, I had it named. It was all going to be great. And then um, time got the best of us. And two days before my birthday, we like hustled to get together to record the episode. And then we quickly realized that we couldn't record the episode because we literally had nothing to talk about that we could post online and be in good standing with the rest of the world <laughs> because that is the nature of, you know, best friendships. And, and so... That was a struggle that I was not prepared for. And we did try multiple times to produce something of sustenance for you. And we also tried the following night, which was the night before my birthday. And little did I know that Maddie and Megan had spent so much time and energy planning out um, a birthday picnic for me that they did. And so they were they were scheming and getting all that together. And then on top of that, they were trying to appease me and not let me onto the secret by also trying to get together to record this podcast. And it ended up just being this whole Hail Mary. And it was the, like, it was literally almost 12 o'clock the night before my birthday. So it was almost my birthday. And I was like, you know what, guys, we, we've got to pull the whistle, like blow the whistle on this. I don't think that there's anything that we could talk about because we realized like we're very boring people when we're having to like PR ourselves and not say anything that we normally say in real time. And I think too, it just takes a lot because you get into the habit of talking so openly and vulnerably with people that you legitimately forget how to have surface conversation with them. And I'm so, so lucky to have those friendships in my life. I'm so lucky to have so many people in my life that like um, I can do life offline with. And that inter- that opened up an interesting conversation just about like, you know, Nobody's Damsel, my personal Instagram platform, all of that. Those are really just very, very little tiny snapshots into who I am as a person. And that's something that I hold really dear. I love to be in community. I love to show up vulnerable. I love doing this podcast for the reasons that, you know, a lot of you listen to the podcast, which is to be you know, having these tough, critical conversations and all of that. But truth be told, there's a lot of life to be lived offline, right? And so um, I decided that I wanted to just focus on that offline life for the last couple of weeks. We've also been in an eventful move. And um, that was a much, much harder than I thought it was going to be. I did not know that movers cost so much money, which you'd think I would know that because I've actually moved like every couple of years for the last seven years. But for some reason, the movers that I hired, and I think just the amount of stuff that I've accrued over the course of having 14 children in three and a half years is just much, much more than any of my other moves. And so, I mean, we hosted 10 foster kiddos in my house over the course of the last two years that we were there. Um, Two adoptions, there's a lot of lived experience, a lot of life and all of that. And so, 
All that to say, it has been a crazy couple weeks, a very expensive couple weeks, um, and I just needed to be uh, at home with the family. And so now I'm back from my um, accidental hiatus, and I'm joined by a very special guest, a worthwhile wait. Um, This is Isabella Herrera, and she is a friend of mine through um, what I would say the closest group of women that I have that are not my IRL friends is a group of women that I've accrued through the world of Instagram. And we've connected and gotten together and had many a nights getting deep into conversation over Zoom calls. And now we have an Instagram chat that we keep up with each other on. And that's been really nice because we've been able to kind of break out of the binary that is often Instagram and get into these real relationships with each other. And Bella is a part of that. And she is one of the the girls. I think we're up to like 20 some some people now. But um, but anyways, it's been really great. But Bella has a really unique lens through which she joins the group because many of us are agnostic or atheist. A lot of us are queer. Um, a lot of us are just like in full-blown deconstruction from traditional Christianity. And Bella comes on the podcast, I'm not the podcast, sorry, the first Zoom call that I ever met Bella on, where we'd already been doing this for a few weeks. And so she popped on one. And you know, she's got the tattoo, she's got the aesthetic, she's actually, and I think like, this girl is so cool. And she is, it turns out that she is. But then come to find out that she's actually at Bible College in Australia. um, And living a life in pursuit of, you know, what I would assume to be all the things that would be counter to this group that she's now willing, like willing herself to be a part of. And she's not there to evangelize us. Imagine that. She's just there to be in community with us. Imagine that. And um, I think that all of us were just really pleasantly surprised to get a Bella in our life because it just became very apparent very quickly that her intention was just to be there and to just be in community and to just make new friends with all of these people that I think when you think about traditional Christianity, you think that would be somebody who those would be people rather that someone like Bella would never associate with or never take the time to want to become friends with. And so it's been very refreshing. It also, she's one of many true Norths in that group that kind of direct us towards like a reminder of like, hey, this is how we see the world through Christianity. And this is how we see the world through Judaism. And this is how we see the world through X, Y, and Z. There's so much rich, rich culture in that group. And so um, I could brag on Bella all day long, but I want to introduce you to her so that she can tell her her own story a little bit better than I'm sure I can. So Bella, hi, how are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, more or less, right? I'm here. Um, I'm all here. So, yes, all things considered. I would love for you to just share a little bit about kind of who you are, what you're up to in life, and um, maybe a little bit of your perspective of how we initially connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been living in Australia since uh, 2018, studying at a Bible college here, um, and have just started this January, um, kind of officially my uh, BTH, so my Bachelor of Theology, and um that'll go for a year and a half. So that's kind of where I'm at in the sense of studying and academics and 
um, that. But I guess like how we met is I remember like I followed you because of some things that you were posting around like maybe politics last year. I got sent a lot of things um, that you were posting by friends and I was like, oh, I'll follow. But I n- didn't know anything about you specifically until things started to kind of die down in the States. Um, and you kind of, what I can assume went back to posting kind of quote unquote normal content, like, you know, not so fueled by what was happening. And you had posted a, a story about a Valentine's day, like zoom. And I was like, Oh my God, that would be so much fun. Um, I was by myself for Valentine's day in Australia, but it would have been Monday for me on the zoom. And I was like, this is going to be so much fun. Um, and so that was kind of my introduction into Ellie, but also the group chat that we now have. And, you know, that, like that friendship group and, um, that community, which has been, um, it's just so great to be a part of. Like, I think I really miss having, um, community outside of what I've been used to for three years and kind of, uh, white suburbia, which is not how I grew up. So it's nice to have people that are so diverse and different and, um, just nice as well. <laughs> um, it's so funny you're all the way in Australia right now, but you're from Southern California. Yes. Which is exactly where, where I am right now. So yeah. Southern California girls unite. But yeah, it is. It's been great. It's super unexpected gift that community has been for, I think, all of us. Um, I think my biggest hope as I've refined what I want out of my social media experience, because I think so much of us can just kind of passively onboard with the social media thing, you know, and um, we're just kind of all like, yeah, we all have Instagram. And so therefore, like, that's what we do. But there's a lot of questions, I think, when you delve into like the true logistics of like, why do we have Instagram? And what is Instagram? And what are the pros and cons of Instagram and all of that? And because of that, I've definitely felt like a lot of push and pull, a lot of should I even be online? What is the online space and like relationships like the ones that we've been forming in that group um, and the ones I've been forming through this podcast have reminded me why, why I'm even doing this. Yeah, no, it's definitely been, yeah, it's a highlight to see, you know, group, like the messages in those group chats when I wake up because the time difference as well, it's nice to be able to have people on the other side of the world in different time zones that kind of match your sleep schedule. And it's been really nice. It's been a great thing to be a part of. So thanks for popping that zoom invitation up. Yeah. Yeah. I never could have imagined that like the zoom calls that we were doing could would turn into something like this, but um, we're talking about like retreats. We're talking about meeting up with each other. I know people have already started meeting up with each other. Like, you know, the organ calls have already so started. Great. Yeah. And so, it's very fun. But so you are here. Um, we have the only thing that you should know about Bella and I is that we can talk about anything for an indefinite amount of time. So there's no shortage of content that we could cover with you. And we have an hour and a half to chat. But I think that Bella and I, we had kind of briefly discussed what we wanted to discuss um, as we were preparing for this podcast. There are certain times in the work that I do that I meet someone and I'm like, immediately I want them on the podcast. And obviously I've only had this podcast for four months now, but um, 
I've quickly like started to create like a running list of people that I'm like, okay, they've got to come on the podcast at some point. They've got to come on. And I think for you, you were just such an immediate, I wanted to chat with you. Um, but like I said, you know, we chat all the time anyways, so it's no different. But I think when I had that initial thought, it was just the refreshing difference of how you carry yourself as a Christian how, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you're not in any sphere to evangelize. You are there to be in the community and to really just like show up in your, you know, as yourself. Um, Kind of what, I don't know, what do you think made you dovetail away from the traditional Christian experience into this sort of unconventional Christian, which is kind of sad to say because you're much more in line with conventional Jesus or historical Jesus. But yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think um, I was talking to my mom last night about this. So credit to her for like, you know, jogging my memory because I was I was trying to think about like kind of what formed (laughs) what formed me into me at 22. And um, I do have to give a lot of credit to her of just she was constantly, I think we, I did grow up, um, kind she called it conservative, but with an edge and, um, in traditional values, but very, um, I guess you could call it justice focused or people focused. I remember from a very young age being like really, really involved with, um, community outwork, uh, whether it was with the church or outside of the church, um, she was constantly a single mom. So where she went, we went, <laughs> but I remember volunteering, um, food banks, homeless shelters, feeding the homeless. Um, and then, um, at one of the churches we went to in Southern California, we got really involved with the deaf community. And so even seeing how marginalized they were in the community in Southern California was, okay, this is another community that I like as a family, we're going to champion and kind of be a part of. So I think being a part, having that be at the forefront of our family as like a Christian family made it a lot easier for myself as an adult to still be people and justice focused in the sense of like, it's not a, it's not a complete turnaround. It's just a methodology or it's a, how am I going about it posture wise? It's not like I'm having to start caring about people. Um, She did a really good job at making sure that that was already a part of our Christian walk, regardless of if we were conservative or not. Um, But yeah, so then now it's just like, well, I've decided to be much more liberal than I am conservative. Okay. Now the methodology changes and, you know, some of the things that I, the people changes, I think as well, and how I go about things and why I do things is um, a little bit different, but it's still the same caring for people, championing people, seeking out people who are on the outside or marginalized minorities um, and using the privilege that I've been given to the best of my ability as like an ally. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's so loaded, especially because a lot of Christianity, um, Americanized Christianity, Western Christianity, whatever you want to call it, um, has, when I think of conservative and liberal and all of that, I feel like I've kind of even deconstructed what those words mean to me. And I feel like I have, especially after the most recent election, kind of 
fallen away from even identifying as a quote-unquote liberal or a quote-unquote Democrat and just kind of fallen into this um, mindset of like being people-minded and being justed-minded and being mercy-minded and being, um, I guess, resource-minded in the sense that like I hold the fundamental belief that we can't truly be free unless our neighbors are free. And obviously when there is a war on resource, which is one way to define so much of what's been going on with the hoarding of wealth and wealth, you know, distribution issues and all of that. Anywho, I think that, um, you know, when you say conservative, it doesn't evoke in me what it used to. It used to evoke in me this idea of republicanism and this idea of like even Trumpism or, or politics in general. I think now I see the word conservative for what it traditionally, at least like the, the traditional etymology of the word conservative, um, is really just about like being for oneself before being for the other, right? And so like obviously we've um, co-opted the word in a lot of ways and made it about politics, but I think so much of conservatism really is at its core what the definition of the word conservative is, which is just being about yourself first. And I noticed that people who were raised conservative, at least not with an edge, but um, they are people who generally they fear lacking if another has. And I think that the way that you can form neural pathways in young children that they carry into adulthood that does not like have them operating from this place of fear is informing a child from as as young as you possibly can. If these neighbors have something, you are not inherently going to be lacking. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And, and yeah, I, I, in conversations that I've had with people and even um, I think an episode I listened to that you had, it was, um, I don't think I ever in the conversation around like believing at fear, like this fear-based, you know, fill in the blank. I was thinking, I don't think I've ever experienced that. And maybe that's because mom did such a great job at just making, making those very, like what you said, distinguished that, just because we're giving doesn't mean that we're losing either. Like it, we're, we're giving from a place of like, we're not getting anything back, but also we're not actually giving away our things either. Like we're safe or we're good. And, but yeah, I don't, I think as I refrain from using, I think the term traditional as well and lean more towards using conservative because I don't want to call traditional Christianity like, I don't think it is traditional. Mm. I think it's become this Western, especially Americanized Christianity, but that shouldn't be the norm. And so my leaning towards like, oh, maybe it's more conservative. And I think I like your definition of being like more self-focused because I think that fits more in with my, like what definition I'm trying to use and explain when I talk about the difference between that mm-hmm. Christianity and what I find myself in now which is much more, I guess, outward, people-minded, people-focused, um, right. which should be it regardless. Right. 
Uh, right. And it was it, obviously, um, it was it in the era of at least historical Jesus. Um, I think you and I would wrestle a little bit with kind of fleshing out who Jesus is. I don't know who Jesus was. And so I don't come to this conversation or any conversation through the lens of like an established like belief. Like I don't, I'm not saying like, Jesus absolutely did not exist or Jesus absolutely did exist or whatever. You know, it's just like, I'm still in pursuit of understanding who Jesus was historically and then even more so spiritually. Like, and so because of that, I think you and I would wrestle a little bit with the, the formal definition of Jesus, but just going off of the story, even hypothetically, even hypothetically speaking, if it was just folklore, which I know that you don't believe that it was, and I don't even know what I believe. But my point is, is that even if it was folklore, the idea of Jesus and the story of Jesus is inherently not a story of fear and it's not a story of blood. Correct. Yeah, 100%. And so we really only see gluttony coming to fruition in Christianity when um, you marry Christianity with um, empire, which empire also means politics in general. Like, you know, obviously, initially it was the Roman Empire, but um, since then, empire has looked like the British, you know, um, I'm coming from a place of not remembering if it was the British empire or the British, they were the British something. Anyways, the point is, is it just got kept getting passed down, passed down, passed down, but it was all empire. It's all empire. It's all politics. And when you marry those two things together, you have, um, you know, a, a political operation that you're running that is instilling this, this sense of fear, this sense of gluttony, this sense of if your neighbor has some, you might have none. And then you marry that with religion and, and just like you really kind of inherently speaking, you have to divorce Jesus from the narrative at that point. Yeah. Or you end up putting him in this box of, you sit there and you affirm like you kind of like a talking parrot. Like you just talk when I want you to talk and you affirm what I want to, what I want you to affirm, but don't actually be what you're meant to be. That makes sense. Like, I think there's also that like you either divorce him completely from religion in general or like the Christian faith in general, or he becomes this like puppet that. Yeah. And then you end up misrepresenting everything he believed in or a lot of what he believed in because of that. It's not actually him. And I guess for me, I I would Mm -hmm. rather people just divorce him from the narrative completely. Just don't even claim that it's Mm. religion fueled at all. Just say that it's you. I would much rather people go, this is just coming from me and leave your faith out of it. I don't think we're there yet, (laughs) obviously. Right. Because a lot of people want, Jesus behind their argument that they're making because that validates their argument. Yeah. And it, I think it also adds credibility. Like if someone, well, Jesus told me. Okay. Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, have you argue seen, with Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I would, but I'm a rare breed. Um, <laughs> you and I would. Um, have you seen like, I'm sure, I mean, there's too many to count, but like all of the memes with like, Trump like having his like like Jesus's hands are on Trump and like anointing him like the depiction yes yeah 
(laughs) (laughs) But we see it, I mean, yeah, Trumpism, evangelism, and, and all of that have been uniquely knit into the fabric of each other. However, that's not the first time that we've seen things like this, where there's this depiction of Jesus anointing, you know, a politician or anointing a really toxic, you know, worldview that is very, very harmful. I mean, remember, Jesus, at least through the lens of history, anointed slavery and anointed, you know, the the horrible, horrible crime against humanity that was the attack on the indigenous communities in pursuit of land expansion and exploration of new worlds. And that was all done so, at least through the lens of culture, against the backdrop of Christianity and the preservation of Christianity and the expansion of Christianity. And in our history books today, both you and I grew up in Southern California, so we probably had a very similar upbringing in like the terms of like the historic, the way that we were historically informed. And we didn't know about the crimes against humanity. All we knew was about Christopher Columbus and like the expansion of the new world and, and all of that, it was painted in a very positive light. We didn't know the injustices that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we are, well, no, I think we are the great colonizer. We are the, the taker of culture and land and we spit out what looks like us 100%. Um, right. and I don't think that right. that's talked about enough, especially in, in regards to like in history and actually portraying history properly. And, um, even in like regards to like, you know, you have the missions in California and, um, mm. and from, you know, uh, uh, off the top of your head as a Christian, you're like, Oh, that's so great. Missionary works. We came to California. We set up missions. Fantastic. And then you actually dive just a little bit deeper and you realize with the missions um, what they took from people and the culture they stripped away. Um, And it's like, don't know if that's worth celebrating and that's worth um, getting behind in the sense of like, yeah, we're so awesome. It's, it's something that I think you have to um, with anything. I think I think a lot of Christians as well are really hesitant to just be really honest about our history in the sense of like, you know, even have something like the Crusades, like we don't really talk about it. We don't talk about the crimes against people, group, countries, culture. Um, but I think there, you, you have to acknowledge it and go, no, that that's part of our history. And, and then you hope that as a, a, I'll talk in the Western context, like uh, as a Western faith that you're going, well, now let's do better. I don't know if we're there yet again, but I think um, you have to with any, with any, you know, thing like mm-hmm. that, you have to acknowledge it and go, no, it's, it's real. Like it's there. And then also try to do better in the future and make sure that we're not still stripping people and in countries and nations. And, you know, so what better, so what does do better look like for you? Well, I think in the, in the context Christian. of evangelism or, you know, even in the context of missionary work, because it's still happening. I mean, you have a whole denomination of Christians who believe that like sharing the gospel is, you know, evangelism is 
be the goal. Um, I think if you're, if you're going to do that, especially in like countries outside of your home country, it's preserving the culture and the, that you're going into, like how, because the thing is, and this is always what my mind goes to, if, you know, the gospel, the good news is so great, then it should be able to fit and adapt into any situation, right? So if I'm bringing it into, you know, a tribe in Africa or a tribe in South America, I shouldn't have to strip someone completely of who they are to then present it to them. It should just fit into their narrative, um, their context, their situation, their perspective. And I think there is a, there is that shift, but it's still very uh, colonizer-esque. It's still very, we're, we're looking to expand and get followers and that's how we're going to do it. Get people saved, air quotes, um, as opposed to like, let's just show people Jesus. And I think that's, don't know if that's a shift the Western church wants. It's kind of, it's what I'm wanting. It's what, you know, I think, yeah. But that, that to me is do better in the sense of our history and our, when it, in context mm-hmm. to evangelism and mission work is I think stop stripping people of who they are people like not individually, but like groups of people, culture. Right. Right. Um, right. Which I think ties a lot into, as you had mentioned, kind of this need for like numbers, like what are our numbers? And I think that you are interconnected to a mega church. And so, you know, about that through the lens of mega churches. And I've been a part of many mega churches before I um, left Christianity. And I think that they were very numbers focused. It was very like, how many people did we baptize this Sunday? How many people raised their hands and accepted, you know, God through the lens of who we, you know, contrived God to be in our sermon. And there's no real follow-up with like, okay, well, where are they now? Are they, you know, have they been miraculously healed from the addiction and the pain and the suffering? Because so much of, for those of you that are listening that don't really know, a lot of like the megachurch experience uh, capitalizes on like trauma bonding, meaning that a lot of like the sermons and things like that, at least in my experience, can sometimes be like appealing to your deepest, most innermost trauma. So you'll have, you know, a preacher up on stage, like how many of you have been a part of addiction? And like, you're like, everybody's raising their hands. People are crying. Like it's very emotional and it's evoking and unlocking a lot in people, which leads to these, I think very foreign for people that don't and have never been a part of those communities, but very much like so that I say that only to preface that like it's hard to explain if you don't know what I'm talking about and you haven't been in those rooms, but it it evokes this deep sense of like of trauma bonding. You are bonding to not just the people in the room with you having the same experience, but also the people that are delivering the message to you on stage. And then they at the end, after they emotionally break you down in a lot of ways, they're asking you to like to just take this oath in your heart and then it's all going to go away. And they don't say that per se. I have in the defense of, of a lot of sermons that I've been a part of, you know, they'll say, you know, this is just the beginning. It's not going to all go away tomorrow. Some of them do act like you're going to say that oath and it's going to be over and good and you're not going to have addiction or you're not going to have pain or, you know, grief. 
But many of them will even, you know, tout that like, now the road will not be easier, but at least you have this, you know, true north in your heart of Jesus Christ. And even that feels like a slippery slope, at least for me. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I had a point that was kind of to your point, but I forgot it. And so I just, yeah, go ahead and kind of, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we can loop back around to what you were saying. No, I think, well, you're talking about num- being numbers focused and, um, like, but where's the follow up? And I think that's something that, um, oh, yes. yeah, I think as more and more young, like young Christians are kind of, I hate using the term, but like rising in the ranks, like they're going into leadership, they're going into churches as pastors. I think that's a massive, um, focus is community and follow up and making sure that we don't just care about the X amount of people that raise their hand on a Sunday, but that they are connected and that they're actually being, Hey, like this is what your Monday and Tuesday will look like after you've just made this weird decision on a random Sunday. So a lot of people, you do this, like you said, it's emotional. A lot of times you're just kind of like, Oh my gosh, you get, I, even for me, you get caught up in the, like, I don't know what you call it, but, um, but the group mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a part of it. It's a production, right? Like it's, you're putting on church. Um, and there's, for me, there's definitely a spiritual side, um, as a Christian, like God is definitely there, but on surface level, it's very, it, it's a production. Like you have people who show up and they, um, they, do their thing and other people show up and do they do, they do their, their thing. But I don't think there's been enough chat about moving. Okay. Um, and it's like, you're putting on a production. And so you have people that show up and they do the job that they've been given to do. And you have other people that show up and they do their job. And so it can, you know, and then people get caught up in that production. And I think, um, there's been a big shift, at least in the church that I'm in, where it's leaders, young leaders going, well, then how do we take what's happened on like a random Sunday night at like mm-hmm. 6 p.m. in the dark with flashing lights and <laughs> the production? And then they wake up Monday and they're like, well, now what? Like, I just made this like oath in my heart. Now what do I do? And so I think they're, they're, the, the more people you get, like you and me, who are like, where this is missing, like what this is an issue. How do we fix it? I think the more it's, it's leaning that way to being fixed. Um, cause it's been, it was Easter weekend, which is a massive weekend in any Christian church for, um, for numbers. I think that you, you can't lie about that. That is, I would say Easter and Christmas are the two biggest weekends when it comes to being numbers focused, but if you have, if you're in a mega church and you have hundreds of people that have supposedly said, Hey, like I've raised my hand. I'm going to make this oath. I'm going to be a Christian. Then you need to also have hundreds of people to come alongside them and go, Hey, do you know what this actually means? Do you have community? Do you, how are we navigating this and not just go cool, cool, cool. We have the numbers. Good luck figuring out life. And if that's right. all we're for, then it's like, ah, uh, that doesn't make us any different than, you know, <laughs> right. really like not even faith, just like an Oprah, you know, recording thing where it's like, 
cool. I raised my hand. Now what? Like, what do I do now? It's like, you need to actually take people past Mm -hmm. the Sunday moment. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I remember when I was working in a mega church, we used to call them creasters. What do we say? Creasters, Christmas and Easter's creasters. We say, oh, the creasters are here. And like, that's just so bad. But I, I vividly remember like, staff being like well it's creaster so like we need to (laughs) we need to buck up and do our best performance our best theater and you know um yeah it's deeply problematic I think especially against the backdrop of what initially started this conversation of going into foreign land you know foreign countries um where people have an established sense of spirituality in many cases and I think too, like, and this is this is more of a theological argument, not argument. I see. I think it's it opens up more of a philosophical conversation. That I don't even know if we're gonna want to delve into, but you know, for me, especially in like my agnosticism, I feel extremely close to God. I don't know that I would define God the way you do. I don't even know that I have a firm definition of God to be able to defend, you know, because I'm, and, and that's not to say that I've arrived. I have not arrived. I am in pursuit of God. Every, oh, sorry. I'm in pursuit of God every single day. And I'm in pursuit of God in a way that I think is more, or not to say that Christianity is inherently inorganic. I'm just saying that I know a lot of Christians or Christian identifying individuals who do not pursue God with the same sense of, I guess, vigor that I do, because I want to know God. And a lot of people, their relationship with God is very much like, I went to church on Sunday from six to seven. I volunteered on Wednesday from this time to this time, like checked the box. I am a Christian. Whereas my my pursuit of God is very relational. And I'm using the word God because that's a word that you and I, you know, can can find commonality on. But really what I mean is the universe or what I most commonly say is I say, whatever is beyond the veil, whatever is beyond the veil, I am in such intimate pursuit of and in intimate relationship with. And um, I have a strong, strong feeling that a lot of, not feeling, I've, I've worked in these countries. I have been the colonizer. I have been the individual on the other end of the Bible during mission work. I was, in, I was doing mission work for two and a half years. You know, Uganda, Kenya, South Africa, India, Mexico, um, and other places that aren't even coming to mind right now. I know what that's like. And I have seen that these individuals do have, if they hadn't already been colonized, because many of the places that I visited had already been colonized. But there were instances where we would leave like the hub because normally, you know, I would be going or meeting up with a group and the group had already done, I I don't want to say done the damage, but really they had already done the damage. Like they'd already converted for maybe even years, you know, where we were going and serving, I say with air quotes, but when we would leave, there would be opportunity for us to go out into like village communities or even like obscure areas, like far, far away from like our hub and you would start to see the culture again and you would start to see, I mean, this is controversial. You start to see like the witchcraft, you would start to see like a lot of, and it wasn't like dark. It was just, it was just spiritual. It was that same pursuit of whatever is in us that intrinsically makes us ask the question, where do we come from and where are we going? And I think that there's so much beauty in that. And like I said, my relationship with God, the universe, whatever, in this messy middle as I try to pursue it and and have no no real definition for it yet is the closest I've ever been to that veil. 
And so I think that the philosophical conversation that I was referring to is like the argument that I could make that people are going to pursue God or whatever God is to them, no matter what. And I hate, and I, that's a strong word and I don't use that word lightly, but I hate the whole idea that it's like, click your heels three times and say the magic oath and like do the magic head dip into the water. And then you get to go into the magical palace with the magical trumpets when it's like, that's like, why is there an algorithm to get into the next chapter of life? If your whole life is spent in pursuit of, of God. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's a really great. No, I have nothing. I don't have anything to say against it. I think, um, I think maybe we've talked about this briefly, or like I mentioned it on one of our like group zoom calls, but, um, it's, it should be, this is something that I'm really, really like, like passionate about, I guess, when it comes to my faith is it's a relationship and that's like the big Christian thing, right? I'm not religious. I'm in a relationship (laughs) and it's, and it's, (laughs) which always makes me laugh because we are religious, (laughs) but okay. Um, but in, in that it's, it's, it should be a relationship. It really should. Um, but like any human to human relationship, you spend time getting to know the person you're in relationship with. You spend time with that person. You spend time talking to that person. You get and probably arguments or fights with people you're in relationship with. It's a relationship. And if you truly believe that humans were made in the image of God, then you are also allowed to have like bring human aspects of relationships with that relationship with God um, and not have that be weird or, you know, heretical or, you know, bad. You're allowed to yell and be angry and swear at God because you're in relationship with him. And I think the people who act as if they have him figured out at 20 years old or even at 50 years old, I'm like, really? Like, then I don't want to be a part of this religion. If you have a God that's meant to be all knowing everywhere at the same time, so big that he doesn't, you know, contain space and you have him figured out, well then is he really that big? And so I'm always like, you know, it, you should always be in pursuit and like, and I think people are, even if it's not the God of the Christian faith, whether it's, the universe or the being behind the veil. Like I think people are inherently pursuing that. I just think it's been skewed because it's the algorithm or like, it has to look this way. You have to follow these steps, ABC first, before you can access the pursuit or the relationship. And I think um, it's very limiting on a God that's meant to be, you know, so big and powerful and all knowing it's like, you've just put him in a box that he can only work. He can only get to know people if you follow, you know, the oath and then you get baptized and then you whatever. And it's, it's a tricky line to follow. Cause it's, it's not a tricky line. It's a, it's very easy to fall on the wrong side of it and get very stuck in these steps of how to do things as opposed to just tell people, 
maybe, maybe figure it out for a little bit, maybe spend a couple days thinking about it. What, what do you come up with? But I, I, I don't think people are willing to ask questions. People get really weird with questions and doubts and discovery. And it's like, Right. And that's always been very strange for me. And if you look at the numbers of the, I mean, I hate to say it, and I know that it's, I guess, in stark opposition to, you know, if your only lens of reality was, and I'm not saying that yours is at all, I know that you are very much the opposite. But for a lot of people, they're only informed through the lens of reality, at least when it comes to Christianity, from their particular pulpit, from their particular church. And so if they went to church three days ago or two days ago on Sunday and saw 200 people get baptized and 100 people raise their hand for the first time and accept Jesus into their heart, they might be under the impression that Christianity is alive and well, and it is. But as are a budding amount of spiritual religions, as are a budding amount of um you know, new agnostics. And the reality is that there is a mass exodus, at least statistically, away from Christianity in the younger generations. And that's undeniable. That's math. It's not up for debate. It's just the math and the stats tell us that people are leaving Christianity. And they're leaving Christianity, I would argue, at least predominantly against the backdrop of the world becoming progressively more abstract and people becoming objectively more abstract thinkers and them saying, wait a minute, when I start thinking these abstract thoughts and when I start thinking these very holistic, um, you know, mercy-minded, human right-minded, grace-minded, you know, ideals, when I start to really dig into, as we're seeing right now in the wake of what I have kind of internalized as what will likely be in our children's eyes, the second you know, civil rights movement, um, and there have been many, many micro movements, but this is, this is very much shaping up to be what's going to look like the, the second big one um, after MLK, obviously. But that being said, like, these individuals, this mass exodus, I really do believe it comes down to, and this was my experience, looking at God, at least the what you had said you didn't want to call the traditional God, but you know, looking at that, that God and saying, mm, too small. He's too small. Like that's not as soon as I elevate myself and my thoughts for five seconds, I feel very much like I transcend God. And I don't want to feel like I transcend as my itty bitty one human being ant on earth self that my thoughts can transcend what's beyond the veil and that I can wrap my mind around what's beyond the veil because that feels way too consumable. I guess my thing is like I always want to feel like I have my mouth full with whatever transcends beyond the veil. I don't want to feel like it's consumable or like and then he was a man, and then it was this. And then it's like, it's so perfectly curated. And it's just like this little folk tale. It's not even, it's not even remotely enough of a story to embody like how I've suffered as a queer woman, how I've suffered through the lens of mental illness, through the lens of deep loss and deep pain and transition. None of that story applies to me. 
And trust me, I'm very metaphorical and I'm very, very capable of taking words and making them apply to my life. They still don't apply to me. And so it's not that I'm rejecting the Bible at all. I'm actually very interested in theology and I love having discourse about theology. It's just me saying that the idea that God is just this one little bite and this is this one little story that you can describe in this one little sermon, um, in this one little book, feels micro compared to the macro, macro veil that I feel myself pressing into. Yeah, that's, and I think a lot of people, which is, I think I would agree on the, um, the reason of the mass exodus is I think people are feeling that I feel that, um, in the sense of like I sit, you know, in a Sunday morning or Sunday night and I'm listening to a message and it's just like, this is not like, and I think with the best intentions, ideally people are trying to take big concepts and put them really simple, but it's so simple that it's, it's almost detrimental. It's not helpful anymore. Like it's to the point where it's like, I don't even know who you're talking about. I think that, but that's where your personal pursuit comes in. But if you've never been told to personally pursue and like think beyond what happens on a Sunday, I think that's, that's another issue is that if you've never been encouraged to actually, Hey, Monday through Saturday, pursue, ask big questions, challenge, expect more from him. Then it's like, well, you get to a Sunday and you're like, well, that's disappointing. That's, I don't, this is not, I've transcended him. Like how am I bigger than him? in my thoughts. And so I think, and it also, I, it's, it's very, um, I think Western American Christianity as well as we want to have something that we can tangibly hold on to and put it in a box. And so we've kind of cut out a square of him and gone, okay, this is it. This is all he is. Um, which it's just, it's hilarious to me because it's, in not a funny way, obviously, but in a, like my, my family says, oh, it's like, it's not ha ha funny. It's just, you know, it's funny. <laughs> no, we, yeah, we say, um, if you don't laugh, you cry. I say that a lot because I like, I would say at least twice a week. I'm like, ha ha ha, but like not that kind of ha ha, yeah. but like if I don't laugh right now, I'm going to cry. I said that like <laughs> twice last night. I was like, oh, if you don't laugh when you cry. Oh God. Um, yeah. No, but I think, no, I would agree. And I, I don't know what the, like, air quote solution is to that. I don't know. I don't know if it is just, you know, people need to have a mass exodus from American, like, westernized Christianity and find that for themselves and figure out where they fall or whether it's something that needs to be changed within the Western church or, um and then have that spread out. I don't know what the solution is, but um, it's extremely prevalent. Whether people have left or whether it's people in that are still in the church, myself included, it's it's something that you're always that I'm always grappling with in the sense of like, okay, well, what I'm reading doesn't make you sound very yeah, big, I- but then you read things like in the um, read, and I think this is where I get my bigness is like you read theology, you read papers, you read how people see him and you're like, Oh, that's quite big. (laughs) But I didn't get that from the Bible. I didn't get that from a Sunday. I got that from 
someone far away writing a whole paper on this. So, okay, that that's really big, and I don't right. know how to grapple with that. Right. I think that too. And again, I think for people listening, you have to remember like Bella and I are coming from different theology points. And so she's, you know, I don't think that we're, we're elevating the level of being in defense of our, you know, we're in community right now and we're having a community conversation, but I just don't want people to think that, I don't want people to forget that we are in defense of our own kind of faith journeys right now as we, as we talk about this, people that are listening in. But I think that that is where I wrestle because assigning that large and in charge, you know, um, definition of God or having this large and in charge experience where you write this essay that's like colossal and groundbreaking. And I do also enjoy those same, that same literature. Um, it's like, well, yes, but also like what year was that written and what was the etymology at the time in terms of who they could assign that to. And much like I call God, God, and you call God, God, but we have two entirely different uh, like understanding of who understandings of who God is. I wrestle with like, okay, well, who is the colossal being? And I think that like that question then turns into, and is he truly a he and is he truly anti-queer and is he truly so binary that he thinks that the only way to have family is to have a husband and a wife and two kids and is he truly you know wanting us to stone each other to death as he did in the old testament is he you know and there's just so many questions that come to mind for me um when i when i read the bible and i have you know i don't know where this fits into our conversation today i think kind of weaves itself into several of the conversations we've been having for the last hour, I have been so mad at whomever is beyond the veil for a very long time. And, you know, you talk about, you know, giving permission to, to wrestle. And I, and I definitely struggled for a while with that. And that's why I felt like it was all or nothing. And I was like, okay, either God is real or God is not real. And there was no, for a long time in my mind, there was no, like, maybe God is gray Maybe, maybe God is somewhere in the middle and maybe that's why, you know, maybe that's why I'm struggling so much, but I am angry with God. I'm angry because I cry out and I don't hear back in the way that I want to. And then at the same time, like my entire life story is a redemption arc. And every single time that I am down, something happens that... I absolutely acknowledge my privilege in saying this, but like feels like it comes along and like there's a redemption, there's a redemption and there's a redemption. And I also am a mother to two beautiful children who like intersected my lives by grace alone because of the incredible amount of strategic, perfect timing that it had to be for me, I am an adoptive. Well, obviously most people know that listen, but like for, even if your people are listening or like your friends or whatever, I'm an adoptive mom. I'm a, I was a foster mom before I adopted my children. Um, but like, that's just like one phone call. You miss one phone call and you don't get to be their mom. You, you know, do one thing differently and you don't get to be their parent. And like, there is so much divinity in, I read this poem by a fellow deconstructing agnostic. And I believe she called it, um, you can't be atheist if you're a mother. And she is equating her God to like, I mean, obviously this is controversial, but like she kind of in the poem beautifully wraps around that like 
her child is God, like in the flesh. I don't know that she would mean that in a literal sense. A lot of Christians would mean that. But I think the point is, is like, I know that feeling so well of like, I cannot even fathom looking at my children and the miracles and the story arc and the redemption and the second and third and fourth chances given to me from life and say, I'm in denial of God. But I also look at my life and its unconventionality and the messy, messy middle and the mistakes that I've made and the continued pursuit of agnosticism and and seeing myself continually rewarded by the miracles of the universe and rewarded by and, and affirmed. There are so many things that just affirm, 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 affirm that I am right where I need to be in this season in from like a guttural place. And then also from a physical place of all the right things lining up and all of that. And I always wrestle with like, well, then God, why are you rewarding me if I am the pinnacle mm. of what you don't like? Yeah. Well, I guess, I don't believe that he doesn't like, like you. I think that's, I think it's one of those things that it's like you, for anyone who doesn't know, like just Bible characters, I'm going to do my best to like name them, but also like explain a bit, but you have people like David who, it's going to sound so weird if you've never read the Bible before and you're just going to hear all these like David who, who murdered a man so he could get with his wife and like, but he, was named the man after God's own heart. Like you're not, you're not assuming that God, you know, affirmed of or approved of murder, but you're like, well, this man was like, not great. <laughs> and you read his story and you're like, you were on your deathbed, a bitter shell of a man. And yet your label is like, you're known across the Christian church as the man after God's own heart. Or you have, you have so many people like, storylines in the Bible where you're just like, what? I think sometimes we forget that and we get very on a high horse about what's approved and what's not approved. And I don't think, I think God's much more in the gray than we give him credit for or we expect or that we assume. Um, but um, I would love to read that poem if you can send that to me or point me in the right direction. Yeah, I will. I love her. Her name is Nikki. Um, and she's, she's great. She's an incredible individual, but, um, I love following her. I don't really know her that well. Um, (laughs) I I love following her. Um, but anyways, that being said, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it, it is hard because I know that like, I mean, you're my friend and we have a friendship. And so I always worry about like, you coming on and doing or not I always okay this is the first time I hope we do this every week like I worry about you coming on because a lot of what you're saying would be construed by a lot of individuals as heretical and as you know being you know what are their leading sheep sheep astray and all of that and it's like honey I am I am astray (laughs) I am I am astray I am in the fields I am far far away from the masses and I'm not coming back anytime soon I'm stubborn I'm stubborn. And so I can assure everyone listening that not only is Bella not leading me away, no one like Bella is leading us away. And I think that there's this misconception that if you don't speak on it, if you don't encourage the questions, if you don't have the conversations, if you don't get in the community, 
that like you're potentially like, or if you do those things, you're going to be reaffirming quote unquote bad behavior, which is so, so dogmatic and so bizarre. And so like through the lens of like black and white and, and corporal punishment and all of that. But like at the end of the day, I think that there's this, this weaponized silence between Christians and, and Christians who are trying to reconcile all that they read in the Bible against the backdrop of all that they're seeing in society and the plague of religious Christianity and westernized Christianity that has been really doing harm for a long time, a lot of harm that it has not taken accountability for, that it has not paid reparations for, that it has not come out against you know, in an absolute form. I mean, remember, Christianity was the perpetrator of slavery. Christianity was the reason why we took Africans off the shores of African countries and brought them here to do our labor and to create our land in which we connected with indigenous people who we then marginalized into society, brutally murdered, all in the name of Christian exceptionalism. All in the and, and never once, not even today, a few hundred years later, is the church definitively standing at the pulpit as a united front saying, we condemn and we stand in support and in solidarity. And that is something that for a lot of us, we see that silence and we see that neutrality and we see it as a weapon and we can't trust it. And so I just want to say that when someone is willing to speak like you are willing to speak, I see more God in one hour with you than I would in every single hour that I spent in ministry myself working alongside people who were neutral and who were silent. And so like, that is what, it was funny because there was a situation recently, and I'm obviously going to protect the privacy of the individual, but there was a situation recently where, and this is not the first time, I had someone reach out to me over DMs and say like, hey, I Googled adoption and like your name came up and, um, or not Googled, but like hashtag, you know, hashtags, whatever, found you somehow. And I'm pregnant and I wanted to know if I, this particular individual was just asking for counsel, but I've actually had individuals approach me and ask me to adopt. And I am not in the business of, for many, many reasons, uh, mainly financial and also obviously the fact that I have two children. Um, but like, I'm not in the business of adopting another child right now. And so, and all of these requests and inquiries have come against the backdrop of Hazel and Oliver already being home. And so anyways, there was one particular individual um, who recently came to me, and I think that through the work that we did together, I was able to defer her from an abortion. And it wasn't because my intention was for her to not have an abortion. It was my intention was to inform her about her options and to make her make an informed, you know, help her to make an informed decision. And then recently we had been talking and she was just like, yeah, I'm so glad. She's very happy with the decision, the, the decision that she has made at this point. And her decision was one to not abort her child and to pursue X Avenue that I'm not going to you know, share on the podcast. But I was laughing that night with my friends because, and probably in a laugh, you'll, you'll cry way. Um, if you don't laugh, you'll cry away. But I was laughing that night because I was like, I feel like in the conversations that I've had in my direct messages, I have saved 
more saved, I say with air quotes, because that's a huge conversation about when does life start and all of that. But like I have quote unquote saved more babies than people who devote literally their entire lives to picketing outside Planned Parenthood and don't save a single child. And so it's interesting because like people are so dogmatic, but there's a lot of ways that you can step up. And now I don't know if the abortions that I've supported cancel. I don't know how Christian mass works. Like I <laughs> I don't know if like I'm in the negative or if like I'm an equal if there's like an equalizer so now we're all at zero abortions together (laughs) but the point is is that like at the end of the day being in community with people who are in the middle is a the entire story like you are sleeping on the story of Jesus you are literally sleeping on the story of Jesus in the name of religious theater. If you don't understand that the entire point is to just come alongside people in their messy middle and to, to love them well, and to just lay all that love down and let them make their own decisions and let them, and, you know, and that's just too, like, I think that's something that I see in you is like, I think you see God big enough that you don't worry about my salvation. Like you're my friend and you care about me, but you don't wrestle with the outcome of my soul or any of your non-Christian friends because you know that God is big enough. And I mean this in the best way possible when I say it's really none of my business. Like I, I, I care, but I don't care in the sense of like, it's not my, oh, this is going to sound so, oh, this is really going to get people up in arms. It's not my job to care in the sense of, oh my God, I have to wrestle with. No, like, sorry, no, that's about my pay grade. Like, in the shortest way to say that, like, it it really isn't. And I think, um, even if you're looking at the historical Jesus, take take away the religion, take away the the theology, just looking at who he was as a person, what he did like a brown Jew living in a context where there were so many oppressed people and the oppressors were their oppressors at the time were religious people. But forget that. <laughs> and he disrupted that as a Jew. Um, and then he was killed by the state for the disruption. But even right. when he's he the great disruptor, he right. was the great disruptor. Correct. But even looking at how he lived life, if Christians want to mimic that, I'm constantly talking about this with people because where I live in Sydney is um, it's inner Sydney. It's um, it's very much suburbia. It's very much, you know, big houses, um, very wealthy area. And it's like Jesus, if you look at what's even written in the Bible, he didn't spend any time in the temple. So in modern day context in our in church, he didn't. He was, in, he was in the temple when he was a child, where he would have been for you know as, as a young Jewish boy. But as an adult and in his three-year ministry, he was out in the world taking care of people. And I think like there is, do we need people to take care of people within the church halls, like um, people who are uh, certified counselors? Hundred percent. I think we do need that. We need people to like you need to be able to counsel. But I think there is also great, great um, responsibility to just 
be with the people. And we spend so much time worried about like our little safe box of like, well, this is where God is. Or, which is a whole other, other conversation, which really just gets me so annoyed of like community found in the church and ministry is anything outside the church. Oh my gosh. As if I can't, can't have unity with people outside church walls or of diff- different faiths of, oh, that's just ministry time. No, <laughs> it really, it, it really just grinds my gears. Um, <laughs> so old. I mean, it doesn't make sense because it's basically saying, um, it's basically saying that, that God or the, I mean, what am I trying to say? It's, it's white saviorism in action. It's right. It's white savior. And, and that's what it, and that's what it comes down to is like, it's this authority of like, you can't have relationship with someone unless you are trying to save them. And, and that comes a lot of times at the cost of being able to love them well. So the Bible says, love your neighbor. The Bible does not say save your neighbor. Although we could have some discourse about that. We could have some discourse about that. And I know that someone will say, oh, it's your job to evangelize. Yes, through love. He made that clear. The Bible makes it clear that the role of the Christian should be to evangelize through through life. That you should be able to show the fruits of your life and say, this is the fruit and that's how I'm evangelizing. And so God does not say, oh, by the way, like, Hey, if you think Kelly's getting into heaven, then I'm going to take your opinion very seriously. And I'm going to actually, based on your opinion of Kelly, interpret if she's going to go to heaven or how, right? And like, that's not, that's not how God works. Like God is in complete and total control and has complete and total authority over, this is a lot of my Christian days coming out, but like over Kelly, right? Like, and that is, it is between God and Kelly where God, where God is, is what God is going to do with her soul. I just want to preface this. I don't even believe in heaven and hell. I think I believe in a higher transcendence. I definitely don't believe in hell, but like, that's a whole other thing for another day. I think that I believe in like, I believe that you can be separated from whatever goodness is beyond the veil. And I think that that's a a form of suffering. I think that people can be in hell on earth. I think for a lot of people, hell is earth. And like, I mean, and then like, it's just so privileged to say that like hell is eternal suffering when there are 2 billion plus people that's almost half of our population that already know what eternal suffering is they've never in their life gone a day without feeling eternal suffering they were literally born into eternal suffering of chronic hunger of chronic fear for their lives of you know chronic suppression um that's hell. I mean, and and you can't say that we don't, you can't live in white suburbia in the temple, so to speak, and say that you know anything about eternal suffering or that you can even hypothesize about eternal suffering. Because a lot of us, and I'm not grouping myself in with those that have truly, truly experienced, like I said, food insecurity and all of that. But even just in my own walk, I have experienced many a day's many a years where I felt like I was eternally suffering. 
And where if it came to fruition, like when everything shook out, that like that was a period of time where I was in some sort of a metaphorical purgatory, a metaphorical hell, I wouldn't be totally shocked. I'd be like, yeah, that checks out. It kind of felt like that. Like uh, definitely, you know, but anywho, like that being said, it's just like you said, so above the pay grade of, of the Christian individual whose job is to love well the individual to assert themselves in the stature of like, let me save them. And let me, let me, let me, you know, you can't, you don't have the, you are not God. And it, it anoints yourself to this God given status. And that's a delusion. And that's really, really hard. And it's a hard pill to swallow. And I don't understand where the miscommunication was in the Bible of like your role yeah, is to show I, up and like be fruitful. I think it, I don't know. I don't know how big, big of a role it plays, but I think in any like Bible story, I think I think are so quick to to identify as the good one. So so in in the context of like okay, if the if the story shaking out to look like you know you have Jesus and you have his disciples and then and then you have the religious people that he's kind of speaking out against and then you have have like the kind of onlookers who are like oh wow like what is going? We are very rarely going to go we probably the religious people he's calling out. We're very, very quick. No, I would think I'm a disciple. Like, oh, I think I'm acting like Jesus does. I highly doubt anyone's first thing is like, ooh, ooh you know what? I'm going to read this passage and go, maybe I'm the, the really legalistic religious elder who is oppressing same people with my theology. Maybe that's who I am. Um, um, and we don't see ourselves as, the, the that he speaks out against or like my favorite you know um, jesus story air quotes is like he's in the temple flipping tables and he makes a whip and he's angry and it's like no one wants to think about that jesus who's who's so the sight of injustice makes him so angry and so righteously like this is not how it's meant to be that he literally flips tables and breaks open you know things and it's like you know, we're always like, he's so gentle. It's the, you know, it's the white American blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. That's, you know, silent. And I loved what you said about like this, the silence um, previously. So I, my first thought was um, MLK's quote about the white moderate and like how, like they are the biggest detriment to the movement because it's like, you're for us, but you're not. And I think the same is with any, with any movement you have, um, whether it's the white moderate or recently like reading about like um, white liberals and how they kind of really stifled the, the movement now or, um, and then you have um, in regards to race. Right. But then I think in the church in regards to just life in general, it's also race, but just like with people in relationship is the the moderate who's like, well, I'm just going to like take a backseat on this one because I was told to be, meet and you know not cause you know this disturbance and it's like well is that what we're actually called to because homeboy over there was flipping tables i don't see that as also i don't mean homeboy disrespectfully i said homeboy in a lecture once and people at college got very (laughs) (laughs) i refer to jesus as homeboy and i refer to mary as homegirl i think it's just (laughs) the california in me it's (laughs) i don't mean that yeah, I um I too would refer to Jesus as homeboy. 
I, I mean, that's kitchen table Jesus, you know, that's coming to your house when your house is a mess, Jesus, not put out the nicest China for Jesus, Jesus, but let's just do life together, Jesus, you know, and Desmond Tutu, I think it was Desmond Tutu who said, um, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And, um, I have very much also in the last year, maybe even two years, come to understand just how dangerous the white moderate is. And um, I say the white moderate because obviously that's the bulk of who's causing this, this, you know, who is weaponizing their silence. But then like we look at the backdrop of history even and the injustices that, that were, you know, playing out in history, whether that be slavery, um, whether that be um, the Holocaust, those instances in history were upheld almost entirely by the moderate. Because if the moderate was no longer moderate, there would be no chance that the small, because it started out as like small, you know, niche individuals that grew, you know, their base and their military or what have you. And I say that in a, like I'm talking specifically about like Hitler and Hitler's army, but also like think about the people that were then responsible for shackling the black body on the African shoreline. Like it took the white man shackling the black body to be able to begin the origin story of slavery. And obviously that took convincing a white man to do that and that that was the right thing and that that was the ethical thing. And it's interesting because if you look at it, like some of the biggest divide between the two men, the the black shackled man, it's a little bit of a trigger warning there because that's very hard to think about. But like that individual and the white man who is now, you know, stealing him from his land is like the white man justified in his mind. Well, I don't, I don't understand this man because he doesn't speak my language. His his etymology is not my etymology. His linguistics are not my linguistics. His mannerisms are not my mannerisms because we're from two completely different worlds. But instead of equating those two worlds as equal and saying, well, maybe it's just we're both men, we're both people experiencing the exact same human experience, but through the lens of our own informed etymology and linguistics and you know interpersonal relations and all of that, the white man asserts over the black man, my etymology, my linguistics, my reality is superior to yours. And thus begins this, this massive mental gymnastics into, oh, well, the black man isn't even really a man at all. Therefore, he can't vote. He doesn't even have a soul. They were, having Christ- they were using Christian pulpits 100 years ago to have discourse and debate around if black men and women had souls or if they were two thirds of a person. And that is because the white individual asserted that they had the superior human experience just because they didn't recognize the black experience. And that's how they sold them on the lie. They sold them on this lie of the black man not even being a human being, being property, because they didn't recognize them. 
And I, I loop that back into our conversation of so many Christians are so dogmatic. They're so afraid of, of leading the street, the sheep astray, so to speak. They're so afraid of being in community with people who are never going to be in the temple that they literally assert that their truth, their etymology, their linguistics, their reality, and this is not to compare, at least not directly compare, the suffering of the Black person to the, well, for for Black individuals. I, I think that I have a lot of friends who are BIPOC who would say that their experience in the church has been very problematic and very, very hard for them. And I know that you do too. Um, but yeah, so that being said, like, I think it's just interesting because this has just been this is not so much to to talk about the black man as it is to talk about the white man's posture towards authority and towards being in the mindset that they are in control and that they are superior to what they do not recognize. And that the posture has always been, if I don't recognize it, I am above it. And I've always appreciated how individuals like you can duly recognize themselves as Christian while not asserting your authority over those of us that are not. Yeah, no, I love that that thought you just said about, yeah. No, and I think I think the comparison is there, and especially like, um, <laughs> I don't know, I'll just say it. I don't think many people would assume by looking at, at me, but um, or listening to me. But I, um, I look white, I present as white, and yet my parents are both people of color, and. Um, even navigating that conversation around um, the Black Lives Matter protests in June last year. And like, I think you're right in that we are seeing a, a second and big, big civil rights movement come up and especially in this state um, and navigating that at church and, um, you know, uh, the hate crimes and all these things happening. And the church for the most part um, is, is the silent, um, moderate, whether they're white or not, a lot of them uh, um, on the Western side, Western church is, is silent. And I think even that in of itself, you know, it works to race is um, it's, uh, don't know if polarizing polarize the right word, but it's, it's problematic. And I think it's, it, you're seeing a lot of people now recognize it outside of race and go, wait a second. Now we're seeing it in the context that we're talking about of like, okay, well you kind of do this a lot <laughs> and you do this in this area as well. And Oh, over here too. Um, and again, I'm not laughing cause it's funny. I just, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry. So, um, but yeah. And so I think, um, and like part of my, going back to like it's above my pay grade and, you know, joking about that being also really serious is, is I don't mind being labeled a heretic. If, if it means that I'm in community with people in genuine community and the Jesus they see is the Jesus that I see, because the thing is I've come, I wouldn't, again, I, like similar to you, I don't think I would compare it to the eternal suffering of, like real, um, I know you're not supposed to compare trauma or suffering, but you know, like poverty and hunger and, you know, but I think the Jesus that I've met throughout my life came in, in, in points where I was really hurting or in a really, really 
in a suffering moment or a suffering season. It's such a Christianese term season. Um, but, and my only hope is that people could meet him the way that I met him because he's, he's bigger. He's in the gray. He's, he loves everyone. He's inclusive. He champions, he, um, advocates, he, uh, lifts up, he pulls up. Um, it's not, um, I have these two tattoos on my ankle and it's, um, holy troublemaker and unconventional saint. And I think as Christians, that's what we should be known as. But I think furthermore, like that's what Jesus was. He was a holy troublemaker and he was an unconventional saint. And if we're meant to be Christ's life, which is what the word Christian means, then that's what we should be aspiring to. Um, but that also means shaking things up and causing a little bit. So, you know, I kind of have come to terms with Christians in church, especially church that I go to. You know, they've some of them have labeled me a heretic, which I think is so funny because I don't think I've said anything heretical. I think it's really, I find it really amusing. But if you're not going to like me, that's totally fine. I don't need you to like me. That's also above my pay grade <laughs> to get you to like me. The people that don't like you, Bella, are already in their mind going to heaven. They're already saved. They're already, and the people that you could potentially recruit, <laughs> I say recruit, like you guys are in the army, <laughs> the potentially, you know, if your lens of reality is really like wanting to show people the goodness of being in community with whatever's beyond the veil, if that's like your mindset and you want to get people to that place of like not counting that out and not, you know, definitively arriving at the conclusion that like this is all just happenstance and that we all just happen to be here at this moment in time. You, through the lens of your non-dogmaticness, through your non-judgment, through your grace, through your community with people who most individuals would never actually create friendships with. They would just idle, like they would just view them as like ministry work. That is doing more for, I guess, it's kind of the same thing with the, with the abortion thing that I had said. Like, I don't personally believe I'm, I'm, pro-choice and I, I don't I we could have a whole conversation for an hour about like the you know the origin of life and all of that but but beyond being pro-choice the point is that like if I did believe what Christians believed about abortion they still wouldn't be doing anything for the narrative and if I did believe what Christians believed about recruiting people or saving people or whatever else they still wouldn't be doing anything for the narrative that's the point I'm trying to make is like even if we asserted that what the legalized or the legalistic Christian, that what they say is absolutely true, let's just assume that for a moment, they're still not doing anything to help their cause. They're still not doing anything to, you know, I had an argument with my family, actually, that was really difficult for me because sometimes it can be a little bit legalistic, less so than most by a lot, but I know we're not, you know, not supposed to compare, but Still, like, where I was like, well, if you really believe, I remember being like, if you really believe that I'm going to an eternal fire, and they've never said this to me. This was a this was a theoretical conversation about the truth of hell. Like, is is hell true? This was not directed at me. My family was not condemning me to hell. But I said, well, if you really believe that I am going to hell, I, your daughter, 
am going to hell. Why the fuck is the football game on? Because if you actually believed this with your heart and soul and you lived it and you breathed it and you, you lamented over it, why are you watching football? And why are you cooking in the kitchen? Why are you not sobbing uncontrollably, literally? And I know that I don't want to support those type of parents because there are those type of parents for like queer kids when they like start like losing their mind and all of that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that so much of Christianity and the legalized, this is what I was going to say earlier in the episode, but like so much of legalized Christianity comes from a place of like, well, we want to save you. We want to help you. We care about you. We want, we lament for your soul. It's like, well, where's the lamenting? Where's the lamenting in the streets? Where, like, and you don't lament for my soul because you become so dogmatic and so legalistic and so hyper-focused on proving that you're right and I'm wrong that you abandon your post as someone who's supposed to love me. And that is exactly why it makes no sense to people like me, why they think that someone like them would be more likely to quote unquote, save me, quote unquote, show me God than someone like you. Yeah. I, it's cause it's not a place of, well, I won't speak for everyone, but I think in, in, and in the hypothetical that you're talking about, it's like, it's a self, it's a place of self-righteousness of like, well, like you do realize that you're not in, like it's like an in thing. And it's like, if we were so less concerned about being in and who's out and who's in and who's like, who we're trying to get, get in and we just loved people like that and let, like if, oh my gosh, it goes back to like, if we actually believe God is who he says he is, right? As Christian then like, and you believe Holy Spirit is as big as he is, then like, I should be able to love someone like, you know, over, over a long time, say, right. And they'll sort it out <laughs> that I don't need, to, <laughs> I don't need to spend my life sort out. Um, if, if I really, mm-hmm. really believe that they're all that big and they're all that in control and they've seen it all, then like, you know what? I want someone for my entire life and for their entire life and at the end of the end of the day. And then in, in that, like there is obviously the rustle of, of um, you know, I've lost um, quite a few friends and trigger warning, sorry, to suicide. And there's that wrestle of like, like I don't know what to do now. Um, and that's a whole other thing of like, well, well actually also above my pay grade. Like I, that, that's not, not for me to, um, cause that conversation is its own, own, uh, I don't want to use debate, but it, it has a controversy within Christian circles as well. And it's like, well, you know what? But I'm not there. Like I'll, I'll find out when I, at the end of my life. And then the like conversation of like heaven and hell, I think, I think I've in my grip. I use that term a lot, like loosen my grip on and ideas. Cause I'm like, I just don't know. And I don't think I will know, will know obviously until I'm dead. And then I will figure out, you know, Oh no, this was real. Cool. Okay awesome. I'm not going to hold on to that so tightly anymore. Whereas when I was younger, it was like the indoctrination of heaven, hell. It's also like above the earth, below the earth is a whole other thing that also confuses me. Um, no, but I think you're right in that. Like the loving people should always come first over the, what I consider the self-righteousness of deciding or knowing, thinking that, you know, who's in and who's out, if that makes sense. 
It does. Yeah. And it's funny because um, I, you know, even, yeah, my best friend, like my ride or die is agnostic. And I think she leans more into atheism than I do. Um, and just, and I wouldn't say more atheism, but more like, um, like science, like she leans into science for her reasoning for things, but then like, she's my best friend and watches like weird, unexplainable shit happen all the time because I am very intuitive and like, it's just been a part of my life. And like, if you are friends with me for any amount of time, you can't not believe in something beyond, beyond the veil because I'm just very connected to it. I'm tethered to it is what I say. But anyways, we joke a lot about like our fate and about like how we better get right with the Lord because like I literally joked to her I was like if you get in a car accident I want you praying I want you praying like on your dying breath and then she's like are you sure is that does it work like that I'm like I don't know but I mean I think that we should commit as a friend group yeah I think we should commit as a friend group to sign the oath (laughs) on our deathbed who's with me And they're like, okay, I mean, like, okay, fine. Like, let's just, let's just do it. Like, we don't know, but like insurance, for insurance purposes, if you're dying, pray. And I I remember being like, you can do that, right? She's like, yeah, I guess I can do that. Like, as long as like nothing in her life is impacted, I'm like, okay, good. Because I literally cannot go without you, without little Nas X. Like, what, who am I going to hang out with? If I, it's not, if you're not there, little Nas X is not there. I mean, granted, my best friend is going to heaven long before I am. But my point is just like, I don't want us to be separated because one of us said the oath and one of us didn't. So I expect <laughs> there to be some sync up. Yeah. So when you're dying, say the, yep. say the oath and we're good. Right? That's how it works. <laughs> I love it. I mean, technically, you know, if you're looking at the cross, the God that died on the cross to Jesus said that the exactly. little oath thing. Like a lot of people, apparently he's there. Like will go in and like, evangelize people in nursing homes and stuff. It's like it will never be too late for us to live our best lives. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when it gets so legalistic. It's like your legalism starts working against you because I'm like, I take away from the sermon. Okay, so you're saying that as long as I only f up until my dying day, I'm still good. <laughs> so I have, I real, you know, ideally I have have my entire life to f up, and then Google. Yeah, great. that's how it checks out, and that's what I mean about like transcending. Or and I don't, I don't believe for a second that I transcend or outsmart God. My whole point of being agnostic is that I don't transcend or outsmart God. Um, but that's right, the right. thing of where you start to question, like, am I smarter than God? If like you ask those questions and then like you already come, you arrive at an answer that feels like you just outsmarted God. And you're like, that must not be God. I found a loophole? Like, is this like a loophole Why in the contract? Why is no talking that about I've... this? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it on a Reddit thread talking about, about, like, someone needs to, yeah, yeah. No, and I think, and that, I think, I think that's the part that no one wants to, well, no, people, people, toxic, you know, leaders or pastor passing the pulpit don't want to talk about the fact that, um, that God, like, so in a lecture, we we were told like um, we we're talking about the characteristics of God, and it was like God is holy, 
period. And God is love. And, but it's a, it's a holy love. And so he is very, very black and white on a certain aspect. And then he's found in the gray and other aspects. And, you know, that's why a lot of Christians believe that if, um, if some, if a child dies before a certain age, it's like straight to heaven. Like there's a certain, um, graciousness about who God is that he goes, like, you have never had a chance to know me. Like it, it, the fact that you're a, a child or a baby, like that is, and I think that the the poem that you were talking about, about like God is in this child. It's like, well, yeah, like there's a certain point where it's like, well, no, I'm not going to argue that you have to go and evangelize to, you know, two year olds in the hospital to make sure that they're, there's like a certain, um, that no one wants to talk about that. No one wants to admit that it's only God who, who goes actually like deep down inside. You did know me. And there's this, a debate that I've had with friends about like, do you actually have to say the oath? Like, does it have to be a verbal, I, you know, what is it? Like, I'm a sinner and without you, I, you know, I, I can't do anything. And, or can it just be that your entire life, you kind of sort of knew and you were pursuing something greater and then you die and God goes, you know what? I respect that. Like, I, I, I like you, 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 you had me or like, you know, you talk about the context of people and countries or cities that we haven't yet, you know, gotten to yet. We haven't done damage to. <laughs> and, so we we haven't yet, yet colonized like, them, God, but Please worry. keep them separate. Like, you know how they, like, Animal Planet will go, oh, we found, like, an albino whale. People are like, just leave it alone. Just just don't touch the albino whale. Just leave it. That's where I'm like, okay, if there's an untouched tribe or nature, God, keep it hidden. <laughs> like, don't let us get to it. There's beauty in that, like, there's a verse that talks yeah. about, like, God is in nature. So you don't have to ever hear about him. But if you see nature and, like, you create um, a higher being, or a god, or whatever, and you die, there's this kind of consensus of, like, well, he, it's an it's a, it's a individual, you know, quote-unquote conversation happening after death. And it's not just, you said the oath? Okay, check. Oath, check. Oh, no, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Right. Yeah, we're acting like you get into heaven, like you get into UC schools. It's like, can I submit a personal essay or is that only if I'm transferring from hell? Like, like I don't have a 4.0. I have like a 2.3 and I heard you guys really like us to be above a 3.5, but I do have a really good personal essay. And I have great references. Can you? I have great references. I can vouch with references, but we're looking at like a solid two, three. Honestly, sometimes I'm like, that might be the ear. <laughs> I'm like, sometimes, I mean, that could work. I, I was talking with a friend yesterday and she goes, sometimes I wonder if it would, it would be easier to be like a Mormon. <laughs> we were like laughing over and over and we were, uh, well, there has to be some level of security in that. A hundred percent. Or like even, you know, you go into Calvinism when, where you have the idea of the elect. Like, if you think you're an elect, then it's kind of like, like okay, cool. Like, I'm already, I've already been elected. It's like, uh, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I guess there's security. But I don't know if I want that. Like, guessing it's, 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 I don't know. I feel like you, you have to laugh about it. It's, it's so funny. funny. It's, at the end of the day, I believe it's an individual, again, air quotes conversation happening after death and it's not just us like oath no oath oath no oath oath oh, you said the oath but then you know you kind of like swore at me on your death death so you get like because i don't know about you but like the whole like 
Sunday school thing was like, at least I was, I was told mom, which made it a lot of fun, but it's like, you, we each get a house in heaven, heaven. And you can make the house at like, however you want it to look. So when I think about like, oh, like you kind of, you know, you said the oath, but you kind of like backslid, you get like a lesser house, you get like less property in heaven. And like, well, yeah, I have asked like this to you before, I think in a zoom call where we, I think you've been like, I don't know. I never thought about that where I've been like, what is going, what kind of an establishment is God running that there is, there is scandal in the streets of heaven. There's freaking angels falling. What kind of an establishment? I was, I was promised peace. I was promised (laughs) prosperity. I did not expect there to be like, if there are angels that can divorce themselves from God when they're already up there, then yeah, nothing's off the table. Maybe we are getting shacks up there. Like, absolutely not. I thought this was supposed to be like a spa-like experience. How am I supposed to enjoy my eternity if the devil is outside bickering with my father? Like, like, I didn't know that that, like, when you think about the, like, I had asked Bella in a Zoom call. I was like, Bella, why, why did the angel turn into the devil if the angel was already in heaven if heaven's supposed to be perfect and then that was like that's these are the kind of questions that keep me up at night but yeah like what kind of an establishment what kind of a joint is this like i expect if i live as a calvinist if i devote my life with freaking skirts below my knees never having a sexually fulfilling (laughs) one time I expect, nay, I demand a quiet establishment in heaven. I don't go want to Karen. No, no, I will go full Karen. I will literally demand a refund. I will be like, look, you're telling me that little Nas X is performing downstairs and you're arguing up here with a mother? No. Anyways. That's, I don't get it. I don't get it. But I think I see life too great to be invited into like, but then like, this is a, we have to end this podcast soon, but that's a whole other interesting conversation about like neural pathways and like the study of neurotheology and kind of like what lights up in the brain when you study the brain against the backdrop of theology. And there's all this stuff about like, there are some people that legitimately are black and white thinkers and their neural pathways are black and white not literally black and white, but you know what I mean. Like their neural pathways are very like, there is a start and there is an end. There is an answer to the question. And there are people like me who are like polar opposite for better and for worse that are like, there is no answer. Everything is gray. And like, it's very hard for us. Yeah. I'm one of those people where I'm like, there are certain things where I'm like, oh no, I have a very definite answer for this. And you know, I, I believe this and the other things where like your question about, heaven and I was like oh I don't know but it also me was like I don't know if I care either like personally I don't know individually if that actually matters to me um I, I did have an answer which we can talk about later but um but yeah and I think yeah and so I think then I would be it, I would love to do more research or more uh, have more conversations with people who understand the pathways and like how it works I think as well like especially if you grow up in the church and how things were taught to you and if they were black and white and if they they were gray and how that um creates pathways now that you're right and we actually know a lot yeah we know a lot about 
pathway creation in general. We know how a neural pathway is created um, in general, like a general, like we know how someone learns to go potty in the potty. So mom talk, but we like, we know that you can identify on a scan, you know, I don't know which of like the eight different scans would be best to identify like the neural pathway that shows that your child is now potty trained, but you can, the technology is there and it's only progressing. Right. And so eventually, and like, if you taught your child for five years to go, you know, potty in the sink, then like they wouldn't have no idea what a potty was and they would be very confused by it. And it's in the same way, it's like if you teach your child to be dogmatic for the first five years of your li- their life, which is when they're forming their neural pathways, and then you bring in this like secondary reinforcer and you bring in a, a metaphorical potty and you're like, here you go, be nice to people. Here you go, like forgive people. They're like, what is this? I've been, you know, metaphorically peeing in the sink my whole life. And so it is very much it becomes an issue because you have such a, and that's where the, I, I think I struggle with the indoctrination factor because you have such a narrow window to indoctrinate the pathways with, do, you know, either dogmatic or non. So I think that like I had asked you at the very beginning of this episode, like, where do you think it comes from? And you had given a great answer. I think probably more than likely too, you were allowed to ask questions and you were allowed to love people more than you were like, it was imposed on yeah. you to, be legalistic and so that's kind of like those were formed in you and so it does become a huge disconnect though because you can't judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree and if the legalistic christian is a fish and we're asking them to love people well and unconditionally and without any sort of reserve in the pursuit of quote-unquote saving them that's kind of like asking a fish to climb a tree. But I think that's why, like, I get asked a lot by, you know, non-Christians or um, people who have been hurt by toxic theology. Why do you stay? Like, why are you in the same church? Why do you continue to go to Bible college? Why are you in these spheres? And I think a big part of that is is, is related to the fish trying to climb a tree is that, like, who who is going to have a conversation with the fish about the fact that it's not necessarily their fault, but it's also like, this is what you're missing. Like, I understand we're holding you to a standard that you can't, you physically cannot either wrap your head around or that you just weren't raised to think like this, but let's have a conversation about what that looks like for you. Just like one step forward. And I think that's the unique, a unique role that I play is that I'm, I, I think I do a really good job at, at really simply and purely loving people without an agenda. And then I also can talk to really legalistic or, you know, air quotes, traditional conservative Christians about like, can you just love one step better or like one much more? Like, I'm not asking you to go from zero to a hundred. I'm not asking you to go from like zero to one, like, that's all I'm like for right now, the next year, just work on being like loving just one neighbor really, really well. And then, you know, after that year, let's, we'll talk more. And I think it's, it's hard, but I think that like, I, I don't feel like it's, it's right to just toss them all out. You know what I mean? And just go, well, you guys are awful at this. We need, we just need to, we need more progressive Christians. We need more people who are less dogmatic. 
I think there is um, like significance in helping them, the ones that want to, that are willing to like progress a little bit over time. But Mm -hmm. yeah, lots of conversation happening with all of that and so much more to say. But Bella, we are going to wrap up this conversation. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, joining me today for my very truant birthday episode. Um, I value you and your friendship and your thoughts on everything. These are really hard conversations to have, especially in the public eye, because the public eye is not an easy eye to be in, right? Um, Because a lot of people have a lot to say. um, And that's hard sometimes. But I think that this is extremely valuable, especially for individuals who are wrestling with um, being in that gray area that both of you, both you and I occupy. And so I'm grateful for you. I appreciate you. I hope you'll come back on again at some point. I think we're going to do a religion panel at some point. I might even make you break out your Bible. But um, Yeah, I I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ellie. Yeah, and we have um, this episode rolling out this Friday. um, Well, you'll be listening to it on Friday, which is the 10th, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And then there will be another episode um, with an individual named Sarah, who is currently in the process of deconstructing as well. We're kind of in a theme right now. And then we're going to switch over in the month of May to talking about foster care and adoption. Um, that is, a, May is a National Foster Care Awareness Month. So we have some really great panelists coming on. We have a lot lined up for you. Um, I have a fun episode for you in two weeks. So the podcast is back. I took my hiatus. I can't guarantee that I won't take another one because I have made a commitment to prioritize my family over anything else. But I so, so, so appreciate listeners that have given me grace in this two weeks off. And I will see y'all back here next Friday, April 17th, for more conversation. Bye, guys.